BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Mina Kim. This hour, Katie Porter was one of seven Democratic candidates who flipped California House seats from red to blue in the 2018 election. Republicans took back four of those seats in November, but Porter was easily reelected. Her tough questioning of CEOs and government officials has gone viral on several occasions, and Porter is widely seen as an up-and-coming Democrat. As the House presses for removal of Donald Trump and the possible second impeachment of the president, the Orange County Congresswoman joins us to discuss the state of politics in Washington. That's next on Forum, right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, here today for Mina Kim. Well, among the stars of last year's freshman class in Congress was Orange County Democrat Katie Porter. As a member of the House Financial Services Committee, Porter's grilling of J.P. Morgan Chase Bank CEO Jamie Dimon went viral for pushing him about income inequality and low wages at his bank. In the November election, two of her fellow Orange County Democrats lost their bids for re-election, but she easily won a second term. Katie Porter joins us now from Washington, D.C., where Congress is still reeling from last week's violence at the Capitol. Congresswoman Porter, welcome to Forum. Thank you. I'm grateful to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us on what I can only imagine is uh, an incredibly hectic and harrowing week. And I want to begin by asking you, uh, where were you and your staff last week on Wednesday when that angry mob broke into the Capitol? Um, well, this, we were in my office. Um, one of the House office buildings was evacuated due to a um, security threat, a bomb threat. Um, and so another member of Congress um, needed a place to shelter. And so I sheltered with this other member um, and two staffers. Um, we barricaded ourselves in the office, um, put couches and chairs and desks and things against the outside doors, turned off all the lights, 
drew the window curtains, um, silenced everything, and stayed silent um, in the dark for six hours. Six hours. And what did you hear out in the hallway and outside? Well, out in the hallway, we heard some um, male voices um, talking, some some um, discussion. We didn't know what was on the other side of the door, um, whether those were you know, staffers, whether those were police officers, whether those were people roaming the, you know, the building. Um, I think one of the big, there are many, many, many problems with what occurred on January 6th. Um, among them, a lack of good communication um, between the Capitol Police um, and, you know, two members of Congress. Um, you know, when, after six and a half hours, we finally, you know, I cracked the door um, and went out into the hallway to try to understand what was happening. But at no time, did you know the police check on us at no time did they text each of us to make sure we were in a secured location um, they simply had no idea where a large number of members of congress were during that entire episode this is sort of a trivial question but six hours is a long time and i'm just wondering what did you talk about um, well, you know, we all, uh, we tried to change clothes. Um, I, myself and the other member were dressed up. So we, we tried to get into, um, out of heels and into shoes that would let us run away. Um, we tried to dress down so we might not be recognized. Um, so I had some exercise clothes and my staff had an extra pair of sneakers. Um, you know, at some point, um, you know, there's not a lot to say other than to, to keep asking each other if you're okay. Um, we got some, you know, I had a, my mother's a quilter. I had two quilts in my office and we, we used those to stay warm. It was, it was very cold in the building. Um, you know, I, at one point I, I started opening up constituent mail. I had an entire huge, huge box of, of constituent letters and correspondence. And um, I just sat there and, and read that for several hours and, and tried to keep doing my job as best I could, given that I was I was barricaded inside. Well, constituent outreach never stops when you're a member of Congress. Um, I want to ask you, you are uh, you, you mentioned, I think, in your press statement uh, that the House Oversight Committee's got to induct, uh, conduct a full investigation of what happened. Uh, what are some of the questions you have? Well, I think right now we're still trying to understand exactly who's going to do the investigating and what areas of responsibility they're going to take. Um, there, you know, because there are issues about, you know, the actions of the people who were there, about the the law enforcement's ability to monitor the planning that went into this, about what happened the day of, about what's happened in the aftermath. I think the oversight committee, um, you know, the committee on oversight and reform is the best situated to um, do the investigation. Um, some of these other committees have jurisdiction, either appropriating or authorizing jurisdiction over some of the very agencies and entities that we need to be asking questions of, whether that's the FBI, the Capitol Police, um, House staff, whatever it's going to be. Um, and the Oversight Committee also, you know, this is what we're experts in. We know how to take depositions. We know how to issue subpoenas. Um, we were very effective in doing this work with entities like um, Big Pharma, and I think that the Oversight Committee could begin real investigative work immediately. Um, I think right now what we're seeing is lots of different entities wanting to, to do different parts of this. Um, and I think that we need to understand how the pieces fit together. 
There is often in situations like this a rush to judgment, you know, about what happened and who's responsible. The the chief of the Capitol Police uh, force, uh, there was there were calls for his resignation almost immediately. He did step down. But then yesterday he talked about his trying to get more help from uh, the National Guard and others and being rejected, that that request being rejected. What are some of the concerns you have about, uh, you know, about that rush to judgment? Yeah, no, that was a very interesting um, comments from the now former um, chief of the Capitol Police, Mr. Sun, Officer Sun. And I think, you know, one of the things he says is he asked for things and they were he was told they were going to have to be run up the chain um, or they were going to have to check with other leaders. I, you know, we need to understand, one, what does that mean? And two, did the sergeant at arms actually do that? If they did, who did they ask and what did they say? Um, and I, you know, I think there's going to be an awful lot of effort, just like there is in any one of these situations, um, to say, well, they had a role, you know, she had a role, that entity had a role. Yes, probably the answer to that is yes. Everybody had some role to play, um, but we need to get to the bottom of this and understand so that we can build a better architecture um, to keep people safe. I think none of us want to see the Capitol um, become kind of fully locked away from the American people. And so we have to understand where the failures were so that we can understand how to fix them. And that means having a wide ranging investigation um, to understand things. And so we can't, just like we wouldn't want the chief of the police to run this investigation, which is why we called for his resignation. We have to make sure that any other entities that may have had some role um, in this either, either positive or negative are are involved in or able to check or shape the investigation. When you're hiding under a table worried about a mob bursting into your office, I'm guessing it doesn't really matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're scared. And I'm wondering to what extent now is there a bipartisan agreement about what needs to happen in terms of an investigation and uh, you know ultimately and I'm not talking about, you know, impeachment yet. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute, but you know just in terms of what happened that day. I certainly think when there's a crisis like this, you want to see, and we, we do to some extent see, um, party lines breaking down and, and people coming together to have discussions. But I also want to be clear. I mean, there were members who didn't stay safe, um, who did who took actions that, that both could have encouraged this kind of situation, but also could have made it more difficult for the police to get control of this situation. Um, and so, you know, people who were doing things like revealing the, the secure location um, or, you know, encouraging people to fight hard. I mean, those were very, very um, unhelpful. That's the most generous term I can apply. You're um, talking about members of Congress. Yeah, talking about members of Congress um, who did that. And, you know, I'll just also say, you know, when we finally emerged, we were told there was a secure location and that we should go, I should go check in at the secure location. So the police would know that I was okay. The police who had never texted me or called me or come looking for me. When I went to that secure location, um, I opened the door and there were dozens of members Republican members not wearing masks in a very crowded space. And, you know, I, I left that room and went back and, and, and barricaded myself in my office. I, I just, you know, this was, if you're not willing to keep your members safe with a simple act like wearing a mask, 
it's it's hard to have bipartisan confidence that they really understand what is dangerous and what risks are. And we're seeing a lot of people, I think, that are going that are sick already and that are going to get very sick. Um, you know, the Capitol Police had a lot on their plate that day. But in that secure room, the very police officers who are supposed to be willing, you know, and, and did in many instances take heroic actions to keep us safe, also weren't willing to tell Republican members to wear masks. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Forum, and my guest is Katie Porter. She's the U.S. Congresswoman representing California's 45th Congressional District in Orange County. She's a member of the House Financial Services Committee and the House Oversight and Reform Committee. I want to ask you, Congresswoman, about one of those colleagues, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, who is the House uh, Minority Leader. Uh, He was also one of those uh, members of Congress who was pushing to not certify the Electoral College results. He's since said that he talked to President Trump and that President Trump has accepted some responsibility, although the president did not accept any today. And I'm just wondering... What are your thoughts and what is your assessment of him as the minority leader uh, and as a fellow Californian? Well, you know, I I certainly hope that my colleagues on the other side of the aisle will have a robust discussion and um, about what kind of leadership they want, what kind of leadership their constituents deserve, constituents of who are both Democrat and Republican. I mean, I represent a majority Republican district. I, you know, I also think about, and I'm a, I'm a Democrat, I think about all of my constituents. Um, Mr. McCarthy has the same obligation. He may represent a Republican area, he is a Republican, but he needs to be asking himself what is right for America, what is right for Americans. And you know, I think any comments or conversations that the president may or may not have had with Minority Leader McCarthy are no substitute for the president being accountable and honest with the American people about what he's done here. McCarthy has uh, discussed and promoted alternatives to impeachment, and I want to talk about that in a minute, but uh, he's talking about things like a House censure of the president, uh, a full-scale investigation, which undoubtedly will happen. What are your thoughts of something short of impeachment? I, I have to say I, I appreciate Mr. McCarthy you know, acknowledging that there is a need to take action, but what we saw what people went through, the loss of lives, the risk to the functioning of our democracy was extremely grave. And I I simply, you know, I think it is entirely appropriate to use the tools that are in our constitution to hold the president accountable. This is really an important big level concept for us to think about. Okay, they I want to... They I'm so- made... The, they made legislation. They made the Congress is supposed to be accountable to the president. All right. More so to come. The president is supposed to be accountable to Congress. Sorry to interrupt. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Congresswoman Katie Porter. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. My guest is 
Orange County Democratic Congresswoman Katie Porter. She represents the 45th Congressional District, just reelected to her second term back in November. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email us if you prefer. It's forum at kqed.org. Congresswoman, let me ask you now about impeachment. Um, The House uh, is taking up, I believe, today a resolution uh, urging the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove the president. And if that fails, which it's likely to uh, – he's not likely to do that, whether or not it passes the House. Um, Why is impeachment the right thing to do at this time? Well, I mean, I think you can see by the order in which Congress is proceeding here, um, we're attempting to, uh, you know, indicate that we think the 25th Amendment is a is the more absolution given the moment in time we're in, given the impending inauguration and transfer of power. Um, and so we're starting very intentionally um, with this resolution asking for the vice president to invoke the 25th amendment. We hope then that the, the majority of the cabinet um, will, will do that. If that's not, if that does not happen, um, then we're, and we're gonna allow 24 hours, I think to, for, for the vice president to step up and the cabinet to step up, um, then we will vote on um, an article of impeachment. You know, it's, I think it's really incredibly important that we hold the president accountable for what he has done here. Um, you know, we cannot embolden um, elected leaders. We cannot embolden anyone um, to try to overturn elections by violent attack, by insurrection. Um, that is a, that is an attack on the fundamentals of democracy. Um, and so we have to think both about our legitimacy um, of our, our democracy, both here and worldwide. Um, and so we have to stand up and make clear that there's no room for this kind of action. And I think when you look globally and historically, um, you know, often people who have seized control, people who have become you know, terrible leaders um, have often had to take multiple, multiple attempts at it. And we have to make clear, this is the end. We're gonna stand up for our constitution and for our country. And I think every Republican, every Democrat, every American needs to, to be on the side of accountability. Of course, the House did impeach President Trump a year ago or so over his phone call with the president of Ukraine. And I was surprised at how little that came up during the presidential campaign. I don't think it was ever mentioned, uh, maybe once during the debates. Um, is there any sense, did, did you and your Democratic colleagues look back, as you look back on that, uh, is there anything you would have done differently? And does it concern you that this impeachment, a second impeachment, would only be seen as the first one was, as strictly a partisan activity? I think that it should be clear to people of all parties um, what happened. I mean, the, the you know the video footage, the actions. I think one of the difficult things with the situation with the president's actions with Ukraine was that it was you know a phone call. It was a, a phone call to a foreign country. We didn't have you know it was hard to make that investigation fully public given the national security concerns here. You know, terribly. You know, my own children were watching on TV as people attacked the buildings that that their mother was in. And that was true for so many um, people and people who had loved ones on the Capitol Police Force were watching them be attacked. This, I think, has 
um, the benefit of everybody being able to understand exactly what happened and to have seen it for themselves um, and then to be able to understand why accountability is needed. Was there any kind of introspection after the last impeachment uh, in the in the caucus? I mean, personally, I, I thought that impeachment was warranted then. I came out for it. Um, I was the very first freshman in a, in a tough frontline district to come out for it publicly. Um, I, I think it's warranted. I think the question isn't kind of political, but it is really a question of right and wrong. Um, was Did the president take actions that warranted impeachment um, with regard to the Ukraine? Yes, I believe he did. Did the president take actions that warrant impeachment with regard to the violent attack on the Capitol? Yes, I think he did. So, you know, I think this we have to do what's right here. And I think the American people in this instance, you know, really see what's at stake, which is our, our democracy. President-elect Joe Biden is uh, expressing some concern if this uh, if this does pass the House and it's sent over to the Senate quickly for a trial that it's going to disrupt uh, his first hundred days. What are your thoughts? What are your what are your colleagues saying about the timing of this? I think the House is obviously moving to act very, very quickly um, to begin the process immediately. Um, the Senate could choose to set up. There are a couple different things the Senate could do to, to make sure this moves quickly. Um, but I, you know, I appreciate the vice president, that, um, you know, President-elect Biden offering his opinions. But ultimately, this is a power that rests with the United States Congress. Um, and for good reason, right? Because we are controlled about, we are supposed to be concerned with the power of the executive. And we have the ability to check that power. So, I, you know, I'm hopeful that there are, are paths to proceed quickly. I think that, um, you know, with a with different control of the Senate, with the victories of uh, John Ossoff um, and Reverend Warnock in Georgia, we could be looking at a very different process in the Senate in terms of speed. I think the constitutional guardrails should remain should remain there. We want the president, of course, to have a fair trial, but we want justice to be served. And it, how much of what's driving this is the you know, possibility of preventing Donald Trump from ever running for president again? Which is something many, well, I mean, or at least some Republicans might support, at least those who would like to be president themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a consequence of, um, you know, him being removed from office by impeachment. But, you know, what we're asking ourselves is what did he do and what is the responsibility we have in light of that? And that is to impeach him. Um, and I think the consequence that flows from that which is that he can never run for president, oh, you know, never be president again, um, is one of the framers and founders and, and people who, um, you know, have, have written, authored the Constitution over years put in place for good reason. So, you know, we in this moment are not saying if you are impeached, you are not able to serve as president. That was a determination that's built into our democracy to prevent this kind of cycle of worsening attacks on our democracy from occurring. Talking with Orange County Democratic Congresswoman Katie Porter. We're going to go to the phones in a second. I'll give out the number one more time, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Here's a comment from a listener, Robert, who writes, President-elect Biden appealing to our better angels claims that the extremist violence of last week is, quote, not who we are. Casual observers of past and recent American history, he writes, disagree. This is exactly who we are, but we're still reluctant to admit and come to terms with this reality. What are what are your views on that? He asks. I mean, look, the, the as far as we know at this time, the people who gathered um, on that day who attacked um, Capitol policemen, who desecrated the Capitol, who put lawmakers lives at risk, 
we're Americans. And I, I think we can't look away from that reality. Um, you know, I, I, I think what Joe Biden, you know, I don't want to put words in the president-elect's mouth, but I think he's certainly calling on us to be, to be different, to not be um, that America. But I think we also have to understand um, we're not going to make these problems go away by submerging them. Um, these, are, these are our fellow citizens who engaged in this activity, and that is a heartbreaking and very hard truth to have to acknowledge, but I think we have to admit it. Um, and that only in that process to, can we begin to work on how to, how to address this problem. You know, I wonder how you feel about this. You come from a very purple district, of course. It had been in Republican hands till you won in uh, 2018, and two of your colleagues who got elected in that election lost re-election. You know, Democrats are often accused of being, quote unquote, coastal elites, you know, who are not really in tune with the concerns or the issues that are important to people who live in you know, rural parts of the country or rural parts of California. Um, and the, but there's at the same time a push within the Democratic Party to say, you know what, we can't try to win over those people, quote unquote, those people. You know, we need to really make sure that, quote unquote, our voters uh, who live in cities and live on the coasts get out to vote, as you know, happened in Georgia last week. What are your thoughts about that dichotomy and about that conversation? I think it's a false dichotomy, respectfully. I mean, I think, one, we should be protecting and encouraging every American's right to vote. Um, the reality is that, you know, we know that voter suppression often is aimed at um, communities of color, um, low-income communities, certain kinds of voters. Um, and so everybody, Republican or Democrat, ought to be protecting people's rights to vote. That that should not, it's, it's a very unfortunate um, thing that that has become a sort of partisan statement um, in some people's ears to make. Um, and then with regard to sort of the district that I represent, I mean, it is a blessing um, that I represent such a diversity of people and viewpoints. Um, and, you know, I grew up in rural Iowa. Um, I grew up on a farm. I am, you know, when I was last term, I was the only single mother of young children in the United States Congress. And we each bring different life experiences. I think every member of Congress, including those who maybe represent rural areas, who maybe represent majority Republican areas, has a duty to listen to and understand the voices of their constituents first and foremost, and but also of all Americans. And so I think that flows both ways. Um, you know, I think there are Republican members who don't understand um, sometimes, and members from, from very rural districts, for example, who don't under, understand the challenges faced in urban America. And um, I think they have an obligation, too, to try to grow their understanding and try to listen and learn. You know, some members of Congress, Ro Khanna, for example, in Silicon Valley, uh, have gone to other, to Republican districts, you know, to meet with folks and learn what their issues are. Yeah, I don't have to do that since I represent a Republican district. <laughs> That's right. You could just go to a town hall I meeting, just, I guess. You just go to the grocery store. <laughs> right. All right, let's go to the phones. Uh, Allie in San Francisco, you're first. Welcome. You're on with Congresswoman Katie Porter. Thank you for taking my call, and thank you, Congresswoman Porter, for such amazing work all the way through. Um, I'm a big fan. <laughs> so this will be a semi-biased call, but it's really a, a question. Um, as a citizen, I first just want to say that I'm really appalled that people are even questioning whether this is an impeachable offense. Um, just, that's just the with the Allie, I'm afraid you're on a cell phone that's uh, not real clear. It's kind of fading in and out. Maybe you can, if you could just kind of uh, uh, just uh, distill your question quickly. 
Okay, um, with the Muslim ban, they used previous hate rhetoric of his to say that it was a racist ban. Can they use all the rhetoric that he's incited, not just the day of, to prove that this was uh, instigated by him thoroughly? Congresswoman? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think we have to understand that this moment on January 6th, this horrible attack on our Capitol, it didn't just happen because of what the president said or what others said in the hours before, but like any social movement, um, like any form of protest, it, it came about as the result of months and in fact years and in fact probably decades old, um, you know, issues and concerns and, and ways that people think about the world. So I think in terms of the article of impeachment, you know, it's really a legal decision, kind of how to frame that um, in a way that that um, is conducive to the trial that the Senate will um, hopefully conduct. But I, I think you're right to say um, that you know, things like the Muslim ban and, and the rhetoric of hate that we heard from President Trump in his first campaign, um, you, know, you can't distance yourself from the consequences of those actions in the past. They're all part of how we got to this moment today. Allie, thanks so much for the call. Let me read some other listener comments. Corey tweets, the response Speaker Pelosi had to Leslie Stahl's question on 60 Minutes this weekend about getting some new blood seemed so defensive. Who is the next generation of leadership? And let me just ask you also, uh, Congresswoman, do you feel that, I mean, the sort of the criticism of the Speaker is that she hasn't done enough to really, uh, you know, encourage up and coming younger members like yourself, perhaps, to get into leadership and to really, um, you know, just to kind of uh, help mentor those folks. What do, what's your response and what did you think of her response to that? Well, I certainly think that, you know, we should all be in agreement. And I think the speaker shares this view that we do need diverse multi-generational leadership. And the speaker is correct that our large freshman class that was elected in 2018 was given um, in the history of the House sort of unprecedented opportunities in terms of people who had um, subcommittee gavels. Um, but it's also true, just as a matter of fact, that the three top leaders in the House um, are in their 80s. Um, and so I think both of those things can be true. Um, and I think, you know, that there's a lot of us who are recognizing that, you know, it's it's we have to step up and take leadership. Um, it's not it's not right to, to just point to whether we're being given it, but leadership is something that is earned through your actions, through developing the respect of your colleagues. And it's a combination of making space for those leaders to emerge with those with people being willing to step up and find their own voice and figure out how they can make a difference and then be bold in doing that. And for me, a lot of that has been really trying to change what happens in hearings and try to show the American people in one of our most visible settings that we are fighting for them. I'm wondering, you know, after the election, there was some soul searching and some anger within the Democratic caucus. Uh, some members uh, were angry that so many seats were lost and your majority now is down to, I think, almost single digits. Uh, and, you know, there is there is a, a faction, if, if, if I can use that word, that's sort of led by AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others. Um, and then there are some of the newer members who come from more purple districts like yourself who say, you know, Phrases like defund the police and the Green New Deal alienated a lot of voters who voted for Joe Biden, but then went and voted for, you know, Republican Senate and House candidates. Uh, what are your thoughts about that dichotomy? And, uh, you know, how do, how do Democrats run with that? Well, first, I just want to clarify that, you know, 
I am not in the latter group. Um, I, you know, I think that, that things like the Green New Deal, things like, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, these are important things for us to be tackling, to acknowledge, to address, to discuss with our constituents, to debate whether there are legislative solutions. Um, and, you know, I would also point out that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is also a newer member, right? So I think part of what we're seeing in the, the younger members in Congress is that we reflect um, the last several years of deep polarization um, in our political system. Um, and I think the goal is to be unafraid to have these conversations. And I think that, you know, in a democracy and particularly in the Democratic Party, I feel that one of our values must be that we do not silence debate. We do not silence um, speech and respectful call uh, dialogue. And so I think it's it's okay to have those discussions and either side of this perceived divide. And I think there's, um, shouldn't be trying to silence or squash the other side. All right, let's go to the phones now. Nathan in San Francisco, you're next with Congresswoman Katie Porter. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, I was wondering if you could provide some clarity on something I'd uh, seen. And it was in regards to if the Senate is successful in impeaching uh, Trump, um, would he lose benefits that are provided to all uh, previous uh, presidents, such as like pensions, uh, Secret Service, um, and the ability to continue running for office? Um, Nathan, thanks for your question. That's my understanding. I confess in the hours um, since this has happened, I haven't personally researched that um, but because I think the goal, and I, I want to tell you why. Um, my understanding is that you're correct, that he would lose the pension and the Secret Service protection and um, those things. He definitely would lose if he were to be, um, if the Senate were to convict him, the ability to, to be president again. Well, I want to tell you why I haven't been focusing on that. Because the goal here isn't to extract any kind of vengeance. The goal here is to stabilize and safeguard our democracy. And so any consequences that flow from impeachment have to be understood that they exist for that reason. They exist because it would destabilize our democracy to allow someone who had um, violated their oath to the Constitution to, for example, be supported by taxpayers. That would be that would be an, a sort of act of uh, injustice toward our democracy. All right, Nathan, thanks very much for that. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Orange County Democratic Congresswoman Katie Porter. If you want to join us, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Stay with us. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim, and my guest is Katie Porter. She's the Democratic Congresswoman who represents the 45th Congressional District in Orange County. 
And uh, she's also a member of the House Financial Services Committee and House Oversight and Reform Committees, where she has made quite a name for herself, I think is fair to say, uh, with some viral moments. Let's go back to the phones. And John in Palo Alto, you're next. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm concerned that removing Trump from office uh, at this late stage would allow Pence as president for a day or two to uh, pardon Trump in the same way that Ford pardoned Nixon. All right, John, John, you're in a kind of a noisy place there. Sounds like a lot of traffic, but I think we got the gist of your question. Uh, Congresswoman? Yeah, I mean, I I understand your concern, um, John, about, you know, that we don't want to hold the president accountable only to have... um, you know, Vice President Pence become president and then undo those accountability mechanisms. Um, and, you know, I think that it's, it's you know, this is a very tough situation. I think the alternative of providing no accountability um, is also unacceptable. Um, and so it'll you know, be interesting to see. I think that part of the reason we're, that the House is moving forward first with the 25th Amendment um, solution is to kind of see where Mr. Pence is, where Vice President Pence is on these issues. And, um, you know, he, he did conduct, um, you know, he, he showed up at the Capitol. He conducted the certification of the electoral vote. Um, I, I think we, you know, we have no choice but to, uh, you know, try to remove President Trump from office. It is simply dangerous for our country and for the world to have him continue in the, his current state. John, thanks very much for the call. Uh, you know, obviously, a lot of the uh, listener and uh, calls and comments are focused on the insurrection and focused on impeachment. But of course, as you know, and as we all know, we're in the midst of a terrible pandemic. Um, and I know that you've been fighting for free testing for COVID-19. You just released a statement yesterday, I believe, calling for health insurers to ensure that uh, everyone is covered for the vaccine. What kind of government oversight do you think is needed to, to make sure that there is sort of equitable access to the resources, health resources during the pandemic? Yeah, it's it's an incredibly important job um, of doing this oversight of the pandemic, but of of so many other areas of government. And, you know, one of the things I've commented, you know, is people said, well, is it still going to be worthwhile to be on the oversight committee if we have a Democratic administration? Absolutely. Um, Oversight is not a partisan obligation. It is a constitutional one um, to do oversight of the executive branch. And I think, you know, my concern with vaccine, and and there's many multiple concerns there, but one of them is, that we've seen, even though testing is supposed to be free, we have seen health insurers impose lots of conditions on testing. Um, You have to be seen by a doctor. That doctor has to be a network. Otherwise, you can incur costs. You have to have symptoms. You have to have this or that. Um, I think it's really important that we disentangle the administration of the vaccine from the health insurance system. You mentioned the Oversight Committee, which are also on the House Financial Services Committee. But my understanding is that unless you get some kind of a waiver from Speaker Pelosi, the party rules require you to roll off of that committee. First of all, why is that? I mean, I think Maxine Waters has been there for a very long time. And have you heard from the Speaker about your request to stay on that committee? Um, So I have written to the Speaker. The rule we have right now um, in the Democratic side is that one can sit on two uh, committees that they uh, uh, get jurisdiction on or one exclusive committee. And these rules have changed over time. So there are people who have different rules and different setups, but that's the rule for for members like me. Um, And so 
Often people will ask for and receive a waiver to serve on a third committee. That's what I've requested for financial services. Um, you know, I'm completely committed to the work of the committee. It's my life's work to study and think about issues of financial stability, of you know, housing, uh, sustainable housing, of consumer protection. So, you know, there are several spots open on that committee for people. There are several, you know, waiver spots available. I've requested one from the speaker and I'm very hopeful that I'll get a favorable answer so I can continue fighting for the American people, holding big banks accountable. I, I mentioned some of those viral moments and certainly the one where you were questioning Jamie Dimon uh, and using a very specific example of a woman who works in his bank, uh, kind of a uh, entry-level position and asking him, pressing him, how is she supposed to live on the money you're paying her as an employee? Do you think that, I mean, I'm sure he wasn't happy about that, but do you think that, you know, people, a lot of people in the financial services industry support Democrats and I'm sure Speaker Pelosi has raised a lot of money from people like Jamie Dimon or his companies. Uh, do you think that the, you know, the fact that you haven't heard back yet from the speaker is a result at all of either, uh, you know, pressure she might be getting or, you know, even resentment some of your colleagues might have that you were sort of, you know, in their, in their eyes showboating? Well, my job is not to make Jamie Dimon happy. My job is to get answers from um, folks like Mr. Dimon and other um, financial services executives. Um, that's the role of the Financial Services Committee. And I, I try to ask my questions in a respectful way um, and to focus on getting answers. Um, and so I'm gonna keep doing that. Um, I think you know that my commitment to, to really thinking about what is broken in our current economy, what does it mean to have a strong, stable capitalist economy? To me, that is an economy that creates opportunity for all Americans. And I think as a CEO, um, Jamie Dimon has an obligation to think about that. What kind of opportunities is he creating for his employees, um, both to grow in, in the company, but also to have a good quality of life as they work hard now? I think these are exactly the kinds of questions that Americans on both sides of the aisle want to have asked and answered in the Financial Services Committee. All right. And Congresswoman, I know we need to let you go in a few minutes. Let me see if we can sneak in one more caller. Virginia in Nevada. Welcome. You're on. Thank you. I'd like to know if someone can be excuse me, pardoned for something they haven't yet been convicted of. Yes. Yeah, so thanks for your question about this question about can, can you pardon someone who's not been convicted? Um, you know, this is a, a legal question. My personal answer as a lawyer is no. Um, the whole concept of a pardon is that we understand what has happened. We understand what judgment has been imposed, and we are then going to excuse or pardon you from the consequences of that. So I don't believe there can be a preemptive pardon. I think this is illegal. Um, but I also have to tell you, we have a president who is engaged in other conduct that is troubling. And so I, I, I think it, you know, it is a concern that the president would attempt to do this. Um, but I personally do not believe there's any, any legal basis whatsoever for a sort of preemptive pardon. Virginia, thanks for the call. You know, some people are wondering if the president who has, many would say, misused his pardon authority, could he pardon his family, Ivanka, or his uh, son-in-law? He's already, yeah. uh, already pardoned uh, Jared Kushner's father. Um, what are your thoughts about that? What are your concerns? I, I would again say no preemptive pardons. 
So the president will be out of office in a matter of days, um, and he will lose that pardon power. Um, and there's, you know, I think there's no ability to pardon people for things that they have not yet had adjudicated. So who knows what? I mean, I really would not want to speculate on what kinds of things Ivanka or Jared Kushner or anyone in that administration might have done. But there has to be transparency. There has to be investigation. There has to be accountability. Only then does the Constitution say that the president may, in light of all that he knows, make the decision to make a pardon. We're going to let you go in a sec. Before I say goodbye, let me just ask you, uh, you are, as I said at the beginning, uh, a rising star in the party. Uh, You're an attorney, a bankruptcy uh, attorney. uh, And I'm wondering if you would have any interest in being attorney general when Javier Becerra is presumably confirmed to be health secretary. Well, I'm really, you know, I'm really focused on representing my district. It's a big job, um, you know, and there are some requirements for being attorney general under our current law, um, including that one has been a, a licensed member of the California Bar for five years. Um, I don't meet that statutory requirement. I think we can have a debate about whether or not that requirement makes sense or not. There certainly have been challenges, um, both with Jerry Brown and with Javier Becerra, to how to apply that statutory requirement. Um, but, you know, I, I absolutely have confidence that the governor will appoint someone who will stand up and fight for consumers and Californians. And then just last question, um, what do you want to get done this uh, in this uh, in this session? Well, I mean, there's no shortage of, of things to work on. I was really excited that right at the end of the year, one of my very, very top priorities, which is mental health parity, making sure people can actually get affordable treatment covered by their health insurers for mental health actually was enacted as part of the COVID relief package. Um, That's not the only issue with regard to mental health that I'm working on, but it was a huge, huge success. Um, And I hope that the American people are able to get more mental health coverage during this pandemic. We're also doing a lot of work focusing on the disproportionate effect of the pandemic um, and its effects on childcare and schooling on the workforce, particularly on women and women of color in the workforce. who are disproportionately losing jobs, dropping out of the workforce, um, and being forced out of the workforce um, by some of the pandemic conditions. So I want to make sure that we're thinking about what are the structural changes we need to make to our economy to make sure that every person, um, regardless of whether they're a parent or not, regardless of their gender identification, is able to work if they want to and to contribute to our economy and our economic success. All right. Katie Porter, U.S. Congresswoman representing California's 45th Congressional District in Orange County. Thank you so much for joining us on what I know is a very, very busy week. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Stay safe. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You're listening to Forum. And joining me now is Marisa Lagos, political correspondent, politics correspondent for KQD, my co-host for KQD's political breakdown show, my partner in crime. Hey, Marisa. Hey, Scott. So what was it? About a year and a half ago, I think we were sitting in Katie Porter's office back in D.C. Um, A very different moment in time. Uh, what are your thoughts about what you heard? She she is really a very dynamic and uh, somewhat controversial, I guess, because of her treatment of some of the witnesses. But you know, what 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 did you hear that stood out? 
Well, it is. It's sort of an interesting bookend, Scott, because as we were there interviewing her, um, you know, October of 2019 was when the legis- or the Congress was preparing for the first impeachment of President Trump. Um, and it just it strikes you, you know, she brought this up earlier in the hour, how different this one feels given um, both obviously the violent events last week, but also just the moment we're in what Trump did publicly compared to what was done, you know, more privately uh, in the first trial. I mean, I think what always strikes me about Katie Porter is how unapologetic she is to be her, right? She is very clear about the fact that she doesn't just represent a purple district. She represents a red one, um, one that's where Republicans are still uh, have a registration advantage. And I think that even if some people don't like the way maybe she spoke to Jamie Dimon, I think one of the reasons she's stayed popular and, and, and so easily kept her seat is because of that authenticity and her willingness to push back against the party when she disagrees, um, but also to go along or to lead, really, um, even if it's not something that maybe all her constituents would support. You and I and Guy Marzarati from the politics team were down in Orange County in 2018 before that midterm election. And uh, you, I know, covered, in fact, the 45th race uh, that Katie Porter won. Um, Are you surprised, uh, you know, that she was the only one of those three? The others, Harley Ruda and Gil Cisneros in Orange County, did not get reelected. I mean, what is it about her, do you think, that enabled her to, you know, get this following? She raised a ton of money. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a couple things, right? One is her district. You got to be honest, like it is UC Irvine. So there is definitely, I think, a stronger kind of progressive bent um, to both some of the Democrats and independents in that district. And you also just have a lot of young energy because of the university, which is different than, say, Huntington Beach, um, you know, where where Michelle Steele just won or, or up uh, where Gil Cisneros lost. I also think, um, you know, no offense to Harley Ruda or Gil Cisneros, but the, the Katie Porter, like I said, is is just a dynamo. She has um, this very authentic way of speaking and communicating. She has gone viral with a lot of, you know, these um, really pointed uh, questioning of officials within especially the private sector, but sometimes the Trump administration. Um, And so I think it's a combination of those. But you really can't underestimate how important an individual candidate is in any district. And I think people feel... You know, she's a single mom. She talks. I remember like one thing that is so Katie Porter to me is I remember a quote about her saying, remember when um, Nancy Pelosi walked out of the White House with that rust colored jacket (laughs) and the sunglasses and it became a meme. And Katie Porter was like, go, Nancy. But it's not lost on me that that's a two thousand dollar (laughs) jacket. Right. And so, like, I think that's real. And I think people appreciate hearing that from their members, because sometimes, you know, when you have the Kelly Lofflers and David Perdue's of Congress with, you know, millions or billions of dollars, it can feel so different. And Nancy Pelosi, let's be honest, and Diane Feinstein. Yeah, so, totally. Yes. You know, I think that I think that definitely helps her. Yeah, we've got some uh, listener comments. We can maybe go through some of them before we get to the end of the hour. Uh, Curtis writes: Trump is a beta test. The next populist will be a far craftier politician. Will seek to align the insurrectionists with the insurrectionists, and will not be so easily seen by the electorate. If the Biden administration doesn't crack down hard and fast on this insurrection, the dismantling of our democracy will accelerate. That, of course, is a very controversial point of view. I mean, it's shared, I think, by many in the Democratic caucus, but it is also uh, one that I think uh, concerns folks in terms of trying to heal the country. I I think Biden's theme is unite America for his inauguration. 
Yeah, although I think some of the criticism coming from supporters of the president and and even some still within Congress that like somehow holding folks accountable for an armed insurrection is is uh, walking away from unity is a little misses the point. I think, you know, we live in a democracy where there are consequences for actions. Um, but I do, you know, I, I think you're right. You know, this this caller is right that there is a lot of um, energy um, on the left, especially to hold the president accountable. But this is going to be a balancing act for Joe Biden and. Um, um, it's going to be challenging no matter what the Congress decides to do this week, how the Senate reacts. I mean, and let's be clear, even if, you know, the House has the votes, um, but even after Kamala Harris is sworn in vice president and, and the new Georgia senators are sat, Democrats only have, you know, that that tiebreaker majority. And so it's going to be a very different um, Senate than we're used to. We haven't seen this in about 20 years. Yeah. And, you, you know, certainly one theory is that it's really going to strengthen bipartisanship because, yeah, you lose one vote, say, a Joe Manchin and you're, you've lost the majority. And it's going to perhaps, as we saw with the stimulus bill, the most recent one that came together with Manchin and some of the more moderate Republicans, uh, that they have become perhaps the center of power in the way that, you know, Anthony Kennedy was on the Supreme Court or John Roberts was for a, a day and a half, uh, you know, uh, before, uh, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. I mean, is, is yeah. that cause for hope, do you think? Well, I'm not holding my breath that Mitch McConnell is going to suddenly become best friends with Nancy Pelosi here. But I do think um, I, I would actually argue this strengthens Minority Joe Biden's. <laughs> yeah, that this strengthens Joe Biden's hand. I mean, he is a centrist to begin with. I think that there are a lot of people across the Democratic spectrum, you know, ideological spectrum in Congress that want to see him succeed. And I think that being that Kamala Harris is literally going to be the one breaking ties in the Senate, it really gives the White House almost like an unprecedented uh, ability to help steer the agenda in Congress. I mean, you know, they're still an independent body, but it, it is definitely going to give, I think, Biden a real opportunity um, and challenge, but to, to, to push what he wants to see come through. And yes, the Susan Collins and Joe Manchins of the world are going to have some say, um, but I think I, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch, yeah. honestly. It, it is. And other, we were almost at the end of the hour, but another fascinating thing to watch, Nancy Pelosi has said this will be her last term as speaker. Uh, we're going to see a very, I'm sure, vigorous debate uh, and jockeying to see who will replace her. Uh, what are you going to be looking for in that? Do you think there's any chance they'll say, you know what, Nancy, just stay another couple of years? <laughs> uh, probably not. And, you know, <laughs> she's, I think, 80 now, so yeah. she, she may want to retire at some point. You know what I'm going to be watching for is who she starts kind of bringing up. Most of her very close deputies are still very close to her age. Um, they are not going to be in Congress in 20 years. And so I think seeing who she grooms and sees as a potential for leadership is going to be kind of our first, uh, you know, just look at, at who might be in that running to yeah. replace her. All right. Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED, my co-host, or we're co-hosts, I should say, of KQED's <laughs> I'm politi yours, I'm yours. <laughs> political breakdown show. You can hear us on Thursday. 6.30, for example. Marisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks uh, earlier in the hour to Katie Porter as well. I'm Scott Schaefer here for Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.